This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. over i actually this time of year i start listening to true crime podcasts again for either innovation or for drama i have a lot of driving that i do this time of year and it's all drama this year i haven't heard anything like brand new that i love but someone was asking me why are we doing deep gold and like where is this where is this going well this is this is the episode where we kind of get to where we're sort of going what's interesting about this deep gold story is that we had wondered if there was going to be a big update in like one of the sort of related cases to this. And that has actually started to be confirmed. In fact, there's uh, someone that we were going to talk to in this episode. I'll bring him up in a minute, but I was reaching out thinking I would get him for an interview. And this is how, uh, how far into this we were. We had already started recording the deep gold episodes. And then I reached out and I said, Hey, do he, someone who wrote one of the books, I was like, do you want to come on and talk? And he said, I do, but I can't do that till the spring because there's going to be a big series released about what you're covering. And I sort of thought that was going to, be the case. I had heard that was happening. So Deep Gold, um, the the subject of Deep Gold, which is now coming up in this episode, is going to be out uh, sometime in the spring. And we will probably revisit this and bring that person back on to talk to him. It's the reason that we're doing this story now ahead of it is because there's a, a couple of pending legal actions that relate to it. But let me ask you this. If I ask you what the record was for being held in contempt, like in the U.S., would you like would you know who was the record holder there? Like this is the person that would be in contempt of court for like the longest period of time. Would you know? Like their name off the top of your head? I don't know their name. I do know the amount okay. of time, though. Uh, what's the amount of time there? It's 14 years. Yes, that is that is correct. It's 14 years. So that is, that's H. Beatty Chadwick. And what year is that from? 1995. He's the current American record holder for the, for the length of time held in custody in contempt of court. So in 1995, a judge ruled that they believed he was hiding money, basically in U.S. bank accounts and overseas bank accounts. He was doing it, though, so that he would not have to pay in in different types of court-ordered structured payments uh, money to his his wife that he was going through a divorce with that was going to be his ex-wife. 
He gets incarcerated, and the end date for his incarceration is listed as when he presents $2.5 million to the Delaware County Courts in Pennsylvania. But he maintained that he had lost the money. He maintained that he had lost the money and he couldn't surrender money that he did not possess. So that starts in 1995. And then on July 10th of 2009, H. Chadwick is ordered released from custody. They determined that the continued incarceration had lost its coercive effect. And they did not believe that the judge did not believe that it was going to result in H. Beatty Chadwick's Was that the same judge that, that uh, put the contempt charge on him? You know, I think usually it would be. I don't know if that's the case here because of how much time had lapsed. Um, and because I'm he's thinking just like not, a little part probably. of the story, I did not pull all of the orders. I pulled kind of the final one to look at. It certainly gets to be punitive, and you can read about different cases where people have been held for very long periods of time. There's also, if you go reading about those cases, you'll discover that like a lot of the appellate courts and the the higher courts sort of rule on those like they're. It's almost like it's debtor's prison. It's not exactly that, but that's sort of like the direction they head with their rulings. Um, but yeah, I mean. The idea is you put someone in contempt to comply with an order. It goes on this long. It, it's initially supposed to be coercive, but like, where do you draw the line there? They're just trying to show you that the consequences for not complying with that court order, it's going to be serious. That's what they're trying to do. So, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, the, the idea is punitive and coercive. And like, like, where does it like, where are we crossing the line and holding the person in contempt no longer has, like, the desired effect. I was going to say, like, that's another situation where that dude was probably really far down in the cracks. Like, because it's a financial crime where he's hiding money that he doesn't want his wife to have. Usually, it doesn't take long for somebody uh, to sit in jail uh, being held on contempt, which means you aren't doing what a court has ordered you to do, usually it doesn't take long at all. And so it would be terrible if something occurred that made him fall through the cracks and he just ended up there for 14 years because uh, somebody didn't put the paperwork through or whatever. I don't see, like, especially the way it went down, they said that they didn't think at that point holding him any longer was going to make him any more likely to give away the money's location, right? So, like, how is that any different than, like, one year? Well, right, and contempt is punitive, and it's allowed because a a court specifically orders you to comply with their, I want to say command, but it's not, with their order, right? You know, you will comply with this order, and since you haven't complied with it, you're going to sit here until you, or I guess they have to do it through their attorney, but until you're ready to do it, right? And so it is a punishment. It's, it's a way of putting somebody in the corner with the. Well, dunce I guess cap. my point was like, it's not a, it, it, exactly. It is putting someone in the corner with a dunce cap on their head. You're, you're exactly right. One of the things about HBD Chadwick that was so interesting is HBD Chadwick was a lawyer. Like, he's a lawyer. So the judges in that case, well, okay. Um, the way that he ends up out isn't just that, like, okay, 
time's up, he's out. It's that he starts writing letters to like his congressmen and senators and saying, why am I being held this long? This is ridiculous. Like his shtick was that he had invested this money and the, the money in the investments had been lost. And he's saying in these letters, like, I can't comply with this. It's like impossible for me to do this. What do I do? And so he's not forgotten about. He's saying it's impossible for him to, you know, uh, present this money to the court or, or the accounts or the, the way to access it. He's essentially saying, um, like, since I can't comply, what do I do? And they're bringing him in. Like, he's not forgotten and, like, left in a cell. He comes back in for hearings, and they're like, you know, do you want to give it up now? And he's just standing there saying, I don't, like, I've already told you everything I can. Like, whether that's, you know, true or not, that's what he is doing. Okay. I, I just wasn't sure because, you know, we recently, well, it's not so recent now, but we talked about a case where pre-trial had kind of happened to somebody and it was crazy. And uh, I have that in the back of my mind. But no, if he was an attorney, I'm sure he was probably doing everything he could to get out. That's crazy, though, that they held him for that long. Yeah, it, it is. And the way that he ends up getting out, it's not even that he could. He, it's not even that he complied and he did what the court wanted. Like he didn't abide by the order. He like eventually they just bring him in and they they acknowledge. Well, this doesn't seem to be working. But like my thing was, can you imagine giving up fourteen years of your life for this? I would say that um, it is unreasonable for a judge to think that someone wouldn't give up two and a half million dollars for 14 years of their life if they had it. Cause that was the, yeah, you don't. So it's four, yeah. 14 years for $2 million. You don't know that at the beginning, but at the, like at the, the sort of the wrap up, you can look back on it and say that. Yeah. Well, sure. And like, so when's the, when's the point of no return, right? Like, when do you realize like, oh, they really don't know. And, you know, that's, it, it literally is, you know, contempt is one of those things that like, it's directly from the court. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. In fact, you're probably going to have to pay $200. Um, and, you know, all that stuff comes into play. And, you know, you do hear of these really crazy cases though, right? Um, I just don't know that, I don't know that that was the wisest, like, use of everybody involves time and energy and everything, right? Uh, because obviously he lost that much time of his life. Maybe he really just didn't want his wife to have, his ex-wife, um, maybe he. Yeah, so this is during the divorce. They have multiple issues along the way, custody issues, uh, asset issues. And then they started to have like sort of a support issue. And then while they're like tallying everything up, this is what happens. It's like, this happened. And, you know, I don't really know much about the guy. Um, other than I did know that the longest anybody has been held in contempt is for 14 years, but you know, Maybe the judge saw things that I didn't see just in reading it. You know, who knows? But whatever. It's done now, right? Yeah, it's done. His is wrapped up. His, it's done. His is wrapped up. But there is someone working on the record. There is someone who apparently might end up taking his spot uh, as the longest 
contempt holder in a, the American court system. Well, honestly, I was really surprised this wasn't the record. Yeah, I I actually was shocked that this was not the record. Um, and this is a case that people can go read more about. There are a couple books around parts of this case. What's interesting is where we're headed with all of this. And the reason we've been covering the gold rush and all of those things leading up to this point is this part of the case is not covered anywhere, which is, I was not super surprised. Like I, I got turned on by everybody. Like I would call producers, they would turn me down and like they're producers for documentaries that were made in the eighties and the nineties. And I'm like, why can I not get anyone to talk to me? Um, and I think uh, your experience was, both of our experiences, with chasing down the documents in this case. There's a lot about it in Pacer, but we realized along the way that people were looking at the exact same things we were looking at, and we started using like the recap extensions in, in Pacer, which allow us to view recently viewed things about the same uh, uh, name, case number, topic, subject searches. And th there was a lot going on here that indicated there was uh, activity in this case. And there has been some activity in this case. There has been some activity in, in this case this year. In fact, when, when I first sat down at this, this came off of a listicle with something else. And it was just like a little tiny blurb that wasn't even all that accurate. And I... And I dug into this in a way that I think I dragged you with me. And I had questions about whether the main portions of this were true crime or not. In fact, I think part of the stuff that we're covering is not really true crime, but there is a lot of true crime on the fringes, I guess. And I, there's a lot of crime that has happened in the same times and places. So I felt like we could parcel this off we originally recorded like a short version of this for halloween and now we turned it into this multi-episode art called deep gold because i wanted to cover it but let me ask you this without getting into the subject and, and like who it is yet had you ever heard of this case or this guy or because i think you originally told me you had heard of some of the parts of it that were like historical, but had you ever heard of like him having this happen to him? No, I had never heard of him. Okay. Okay. So if you go read about this guy, you will hear that he is a treasure hunter and you told me don't call him a treasure hunter. So I'm not going to do that for the purposes of today's episode. He, this person is a, he's a scientist. He is a deep, sea ocean explorer and he is also a pretty savvy and technologically advanced inventor of a couple of pieces of really interesting technology so uh, and i will say this up front i am trying to actually communicate with the subject here um in terms of his situation, there's a very simple legal thing he could do that I think would sort of stop all of the madness in his life. Now, what this guy is actually known for is strangely old. It's, um, I think, 
It's about 35 years old as of September 11th of this year, because what he's known for is is something that was sort of finalized on September 11th of, uh, I think it's 1988. Yeah, which is really interesting. Yeah, so he's known for something that happened back September 11th of 1988. He made a really fascinating ocean discovery. And uh, I think people will notice that uh, these are much shorter episodes here. Uh, I am going to put a little media in at the end of this episode to sort of uh, to shore up, to support the, the story that we're telling here. He, he has actually authored his own book about this. And then there's another person uh, coming up in a second. Uh, so that person authored a book where this guy is the lead character in his book. It's a nonfiction book. It was a bestseller when it came out. Um, I would like to point out, so you said it's not true crime, but I mean, there's at least allegations of even at the very beginning of this, like defrauding and things like that. Yeah, you're you're 100% right in that regard. And I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, but he, uh, my point like the reason I said that is because like really what I'm covering here is this sprawling set of civil complaints and and ultimately he's being held for a civil contempt charge for not being able to or not being willing to to present what a judge has ordered him to present. Like basically he's in noncompliance. They find him in contempt and, and that's where we're at yeah no when you said that i was like wait what and then i i remember i mean it is it's a weird uh it's a weird road that we're about to go down but um i do think it does kind of i mean it's still financial stuff i don't believe any violence is involved unless what you're gonna say has something and so you know it is different but again this is some of the scary stuff that happens in the united states court systems right yeah, I mean, I I honestly think that like, and, and I'm not talking about, I'm not saying prison and jail when I say that, when I've said that previously. What I'm saying is just being trapped in like the machine that is the court system is one of the most terrifying things that could possibly happen to you. So this guy authors his own book about this discovery in the 80s. And then again, he's the main character in a, another author's book. That is also about that discovery kind of told from like, I'll be honest, the, the first book that's written by the subject himself is it's a little boring and, and I, I don't, I don't know how to say it. It's very scientific. It's like, it's pretty dry and has a lot of pictures that sort of illustrate everything that they're doing. But the other author's book, it's a guy named Gary Kender. He's also a lawyer. Um, uh, He's writing it in like a, a historical narrative. Um, I, I think a lot of it is dramatized, but he has done so much research. It's actually quite brilliant the way that he tells the story because he's able to put it all together in a way that like just takes you into all these times. And in case you're wondering like, like what's, his, what's his story all about, everything that we just covered in the last two episodes is taking place in the same times and places and with some of those historical figures, they are the characters. In order to tell the, the next part of this story, we have to talk about this shipwreck from a really long time ago. 
And so what I did is I went and pulled a piece of media archive to explain this shipwreck. Um, I'm, I'm going to use that here. And that's going to sort of be the, the bulk of this episode. This is a, it's actually a C-SPAN. Uh, this is a, a program where they were following different authors around that were telling historical tales, historical stories, selling historical books and doing promotions. That's where this comes from. So that's what you're going to hear right now. Thank you for having me here tonight, you and Elizabeth, and thank you all for coming. Had anybody ever heard of the Central America before you came across this story? Some of you may not know today what the Central America is. Anybody ever heard of Captain William Lewis Herndon or Tommy Thompson? These stories have been around for a little while. They just haven't been made public yet. I had not ever heard of the Central America, although this is one of the finest chapters, I think, in American history. The story begins back in uh, 1848 in January. As some of you are probably aware, there was a man named James Marshall who uh, was walking along a stream one day. Uh, early one morning, he was uh, building a, a uh, sawmill for a man named John Sutter. And uh, he looked down in the water, and there was this uh, yellow rock sitting on top of a bigger river rock. And he reached down and picked that up. and. That little yellow rock started uh, one of the, if not the biggest, migration of humans in history, the California Gold Rush. Um, this news, however, we didn't have email back then. News didn't trickle east for another 11 months. It was uh, December before people back east uh, uh, had, had confirmed some of the rumors that began to leak out of uh, this new remote uh, territory that we called California. At the time gold was discovered in California, California did not belong to the United States. It was uh, owned by Mexico. We were at the end of the Mexican War, and we were negotiating a treaty uh, with Mexico to acquire uh, this territory. James Buchanan, uh, then president in uh, December of 1848, was given his uh, state, uh, state of the Union address. And part of that address was that uh, apparently these rumors they had been hearing about all this gold in California weren't rumors, they really were true. And this is what sta started the big rush of humans west. Um, people who wanted to go west to look for gold in California had two choices. They could either walk as some of them did, uh, or they could take a steamship. Now, the ones who wanted to walk were gonna have to wait until April to begin the trip because the Rocky Mountains couldn't be crossed, they were impassable uh, in the winter. So a lot of the people who were too anxious to wait until April decided to take the steamship, and steamship offices were inundated uh, with uh, passengers. Now we already had uh, the steamship uh, lines in place because California was about to become a territory of the United States the United States government already subsidized uh, two steamship lines, one called the Pacific and one called the Atlantic. And these steamers were beginning regularly to run from San Francisco down to, um, well, eventually they ran from San Francisco down to Panama uh, and then cross the Isthmus and then come up to New York and from New York down the Isthmus and cross over and go up to San Francisco. They ran about, uh, eventually about every two weeks. Before the first ship could even get in place, on the uh, Panama side, on the, uh, on the Pacific side of Panama. Uh, this announcement was made in uh, Congress and uh, when the, uh, this ship had to sail down around the, the horn, as they say, and come up, it took several weeks to do this. By the time they got there, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people already waiting at the dock in Panama to sail up to San Francisco. San Francisco down to the Isthmus, uh, this is where the canal went in, obviously. Uh, uh, initially, until 1855, people just walked across the Isthmus, around 60 miles. Some of them took a uh, canoe for part of it or a mule. 
Picked up another steamer in Aspenwall and the, the Caribbean side. Four days up to Havana, overnight in Havana, and then five days up, last leg of the trip to New York. Steamer day was, um, was a big deal. The, the California uh, uh, communicated with the outside world through these steamers. Everything arrived by steamer. Um, about every two weeks, every fortnight, a steamer would leave carrying uh, several hundred passengers and usually between a million and two million dollars worth of California gold. A lot of uh, commerce was conducted on that day. A lot of things were loaded on here to be shipped back east, a lot of goods. In 1857, this actually set sail, uh, was christened in um, 1853. This is the SS Central America. It was a portrait that was done at the time. Uh, she was a beautiful side wheel steamer. Uh, the side wheels had, uh, were about three stories high, approximately 30 feet. The ship itself was uh, almost 300 feet long. This is uh, the precursor to the uh, half a century later, the luxury liners. One of, I don't know how many existence at the time, but uh, eight or 10, 12, eventually maybe 20 of these side wheel steamers. They also were equipped for full sail. It was a transition in marine architecture back then from roughly uh, about 1840, 1845 up to about 1860 when eventually they got rid of the sails. This was the captain of the Central America. This is, uh, this is one of the greatest men in our history, and no one's ever heard of him before. This is a man that really uh, uh, did what was right. He uh, was the first American, and for a long time, people thought he was the first uh, outsider to explore the Amazon Valley. Um, I think there, uh, later we learned that there was a, a British explorer who had already explored the Amazon Valley, but he had explored the Amazon Valley under orders from the Navy in 1853 and 1854. He started uh, by climbing up the Andes to 16,000 feet. This is wearing army boots and spurs. They didn't have the high-tech equipment back then. And then he descended the Andes, went into the uh, Amazon basin, and walked and took uh, canoes and small boats 4,000 miles all the way to Para, Brazil on the Atlantic side. He was uh, world-renowned as an explorer. Herndon was the, uh, had taken his ship up, and we had about 500 people left on August 20th of 1857 on a steamer called the Sonora, sailed down to uh, Panama, crossed over, picked up uh, the Central America with Captain Herndon, steamed for four days up to Havana, overnight in Havana as usual, and then they had just the very last leg of what for many of these people was a very, very long trip that had begun four, five, six years earlier on a farm in Ohio or Pennsylvania, and they'd walked across the United States trying to find their fortune, left their family behind, wrote uh, many, many, many long, sad letters. I've read some of those. Uh, and then uh, some, some of them made a fortune, some of them made a little bit, and some of them made just enough to afford uh, steerage down in the hold, which is a cot uh, that was hanging, and uh, get back to the East Coast instead of having to walk back again as they did originally. The Central America left uh, Havana on a Tuesday morning, September 8th of uh, 1857. Uh, seas were fairly calm and uh, not too much remarkable until they got into the Straits of Florida. And then it picked up a little bit that evening. And then uh, the next morning, uh, the passengers awoke to a ship tossing and turning. And uh, some of them became alarmed. But of course, the seamen were not alarmed by this. This is something that happened. Uh, this was the uh, mean 
uh, high hurricane season, or they called them equinoctial storms back then, or West in, or East, in, excuse me, West Indian storms, cyclones. Um, the storm continued, however, into Wednesday night and then Thursday, and now we were into a full gale, and by Friday it was a hurricane. These ships were built to withstand big storms. They had sailed through many big storms. Herndon had captained this ship and others through big storms. However, um, on Friday they discovered that there was a leak in the hull and they couldn't find the, the source of the leak. Water began to seep into that side. The more water that collected, the more the ship uh, listed to the starboard. And the more it listed, the more water came in until it eventually reached some of the, uh, uh, the outer edge of the boiler, the uh, starboard boiler, began to cool those boilers, uh, that boiler on that side, and the, because it was cool, the steam pressure dropped, and pretty soon they lost all power in the starboard wheel. The ship was canted so far to starboard that the port wheel could not reach the water. So they lost all, all power, the ship. Central America fell off into the trough of the sea. Captain Herndon, and this is what is so remarkable to me, was able, and you have to realize that when a ship began to sink, when it was obvious it was going down as it was about this time, usually what happened is the captain and the crew jumped into the lifeboats and saved themselves. Uh, if they didn't do that, then they had to hold uh, passengers and other crewmen at gunpoint. Captain Herndon, as you could see uh, earlier there, was not a physically imposing man. He looked more like a banker or a professor than he did a sea captain. He somehow was able to command such respect that he persuaded 500 men to bail. We're gonna, he said, we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to take buckets, we're going to get rid of as much water as we possibly can, and we're going to try to keep this ship afloat. 300-foot ship carrying 750 tons of iron in the boilers and the engines. We had about 60 women and children on this ship. They had the women and children sequestered in um, a, an area called the dining saloon that was below decks. And uh, then Captain Herndon organized three bailing brigades going down into the hold. And the first guy grabbed a bucket of water and handed it to the second guy, and he handed it up. And the guy on top tossed it overboard, and they just kept those buckets going. Now, you have to realize these men had all were sick. They hadn't slept the night before. They hadn't slept Thursday night. Some hadn't slept Wednesday night. They hadn't had anything to eat since Wednesday morning, and they bailed for 30 hours without stopping, right through the night, right into Saturday. Um, Captain Herndon um, was able, because of doing this, we don't know how many seconds of time he bought, but maybe a second with each bucket, able to keep that ship afloat long enough. I don't want to give away too much of the story because there's so many wonderful twists and turns and surprises, setbacks and victories in this story. I don't want to spoil it for those who are going to be reading it. But he was able to keep that ship afloat long enough to get the women and children off. Another smaller ship just happened to be passing by in the storm, saw the steamer in distress and was able to maneuver uh, close enough to actually within shouting distance. The two captains uh, talked briefly. Then uh, they got the rescue boats out, the uh, lifeboats, and were able to get the women and children safely over to this other ship, except that the other ship by that time had drifted two miles and then three miles and then four miles in the storm. The crew on these little lifeboats that would carry maybe 25 or 30 people, five men, rode all the way to the Marine, the rescue ship, and when they got there and they deposited around 15 or so women and children, they got back in the boat and they rode against the hurricane all the way back to the Central America to pick up another load of people. All the people on the Marine survived this.
The ship eventually went down only a few hours after the uh, women and children were gotten off at the height of the hurricane. Uh, 428 men died, including Captain Herndon. Captain Herndon was last seen standing in front of the, uh, the uh, captain's quarters on the main deck uh, wearing full dress uniform. Now, what I want to impress upon you is that when he became a sea captain for the Navy, he took an oath, and the oath was that he would never leave his ship. And he didn't. He lived that oath. And I know that uh, you know, we all go through this uh, at some point in our lives, so we wonder what it would be like to truly be under fire. How would we react if we were really under fire? And when that day comes, uh, we often don't react quite as, as quickly, responsibly, or bravely as we had imagined we might when reality actually hits us. This man stood on that deck and, and lived that oath. That's why I say he's one of the greatest heroes in American history. Ship went down, uh, survivors, uh, many of them, about 160 survivors made it to shore. They began telling their stories. Their stories went uh, all up and down uh, the East Coast and as far west as Dubuque, Iowa, because just months prior to that, we had completed an entire network of uh, telegraph, brand new communication uh, possibilities. This, uh, the sinking of Central America became the first big media event in our country's history. Uh, over 200 newspapers ran over 1,500 articles over the period, uh, next period of several weeks. Besides taking to the bottom 428 men, uh, the Central America took down almost 21 tons of California gold. Story lived in the papers uh, for a number of weeks, and then another event took place not long after that called the Civil War, and everyone forgot about uh, Captain Herndon and the uh, SS Central America. Does anyone know what a genius looks like? Here's our genius right there. This is Tommy Thompson. Tommy Thompson, that picture, uh, probably about eight years old. When Tommy was, uh, gosh, I don't know exactly, he probably doesn't exactly remember, but when he was very, very, very young, four or five years old, he decided that I want to be an inventor, and he began inventing things at that age. He used to invent safe mousetraps. And he had two little white mice, and he'd set them loose in the house, drive his mother crazy, and uh, he would uh, catch them in this little mouse trap, and then he would refine it. He would tweak it and play with it, make it better, and he'd set them loose again and catch them again. Uh, he tried to hatch uh, uh, eggs. He thought, if a, if a chicken can do this, if a hen can do this, I can hatch these eggs, and I'm going to have baby chicks. And this worked until his mother smelled something a week or two later, and Tommy didn't realize that you can't hatch a store-bought egg, that they're sterile, but he had them in a little incubator thing that he had made to try to hatch these eggs and kept in his closet of his room. When he was about this age, about eight years old, his mother was in the house one day, and a uh, man came in, uh, knocked on the door, and identified himself as being from the telephone company, and um, he said, uh, Mrs. Thompson, you're not allowed to have two telephones unless you pay for both of them. And she said, well, we only have one telephone. He said, no, you have two. Let me show you. Took her outside and he pointed up to the power pole and there were two lines coming in and off that power pole. One went to where it was supposed to go to and the other looped down into Tommy's bedroom window. Uh, Mrs. Thompson called Tommy out and uh, had him talk with the man and he took the man back in his room and about five minutes later this man came out with a dazed look on his face and he said, that kid has made a telephone. And Tommy had taken a little jewelry box his mother had given him and he had put all the wires in there and the microphones and speakers, whatever else he needed. Uh, and then he somehow figured out how to wire this in to the city telephone system. 
And he said he did this because he wanted to, uh, he had two older sisters and their boyfriends called him. He liked to listen to what they said to their boyfriends. So every time the phone rang, he had to run listen on his little telephone. Telephone man said to Mrs. Thompson, this kid knows more about the telephone than I do, just let him play with it. Tommy grew up uh, to become an engineer like his father, but he wanted to be an inventor. He became a mechanical engineer, went to Ohio State University for his engineering degree. He was the only one out of 8,000 engineering students that wanted to go to sea, wanted to be a marine engineer. Fortunately, the dean of the College of Engineering was also a marine engineer, and he arranged for Tommy to take special courses. When Tommy graduated, there were no jobs uh, working in the ocean for engineers, so he decided to go down to Key West and work for the treasure hunters. Uh, a guy named Mel Fisher, some of you probably have heard of. Uh, Mel Fisher was looking and eventually found the Atocha. Uh, back in 1976, when Tommy went down and became one of uh, Mel Fisher's divers, this was in, 19, uh, he hadn't found anything yet but some cannons. It was going to be another uh, almost 10 years before he actually found the mother load. Tommy wasn't interested really in the diving or finding treasure. He was more interested in the technology, and he suggested many things that Fisher could do to improve, uh, make more efficient his operation. And as he watched what Fisher and the other treasure hunters were doing, he realized they were going about it all wrong. And the main thing was, without going into all the details, is that you need to be working, looking for these lost ships in deep water, out in the deep ocean, not, not along the edge of all these reefs. Tommy uh, kept this um, idea in the back of his mind, kept a lot of ideas that he constantly was researching and, and uh, thinking about. And he went to uh, work in about 1981 for Battelle Memorial Institute. If you've not have heard, uh, have not heard of Battelle before, Battelle is uh, not exactly a think tank. They do a lot of that too, but they actually produce things. They make things. It's a nonprofit organization that does a lot of research for business and industry and the government. Uh, 500 Battelle scientists work in the Manhattan Project. Uh, the coins in your pocket, if you look at them on edge, they're a little bit copper, a little bit silver. The Battelle scientists invented that, that process to make that coin. They also helped to invent uh, the copy machine that later became Xerox. Tommy went to work for them in a very specialized area, doing a lot of top secret government work, worked on the Trident submarine, did a lot of research on mining the deep ocean. After being at uh, Battelle for three or four years, he decided that he wanted to pursue his dream of working in the deep ocean, uh, and he wanted to invent things that would um, allow us to explore the deep ocean. In the 1980s, we didn't uh, have the equipment that allowed us to explore and to really to work on the bottom of the deep ocean. We could go to the bottom, we could film, we could photograph, uh, once in a while, we could take a gross sample or we could grab something, a manipulator, and hold it until we could drag our vehicle back to the surface. Uh, but he wanted to be able to do intricate work in the bottom. He knew that if he could do this kind of work, that would give him the technology to um, discover other things in the bottom, archaeology, history, science, medicine, mining. But he needed a project if he was going to get the money to develop this technology and allow him the time to do it. For a project, he needed a target, and he began what he called the historic shipwreck selection process. And he studied many, many ships that were uh, known to have sunk in deep water. One of the first ones he um, researched was the Titanic. He thought with the uh, technology he saw on the horizon concerning um, uh, sonar that would allow us to, to sweep large sections of ocean at once, that uh, we would be able to find the Titanic easily. It was 700 feet of steel. It would show up easily on a big sonar, even if it were lost in the mountains of the North Atlantic. But the problem was, because it was steel, you couldn't get into it. 
All the video that you see of the Titanic is either in small sections on the outside or cameras that are put in through portholes and they've been able to go down the main staircase and go just several feet back and that's as far as they can go. All the, uh, how many of you saw the movie Titanic? Those opening scenes where they have the flying eyeball going down the long corridor and then making right hand turns and picking stuff up, tossing it aside, all that was just a part of the movie that can't be done. Tommy wanted to be able to work down there. Besides, if he could even, if you could get into the hull of the Titanic, there was nothing there to recover. There was no centrally located treasure. Uh, Tommy, after uh, putting a lot of ships through this rigorous uh, risk analysis is what it was, which he was always doing, selected the SS Central America. So one of the problems I had in writing this, people say, well, what was the hardest part of writing it? Probably number one was the structure of the book, how to, how to weave together the, the story of the sinking with the story of the recovery. Uh, when I look at it now, it looks so obvious to me, but it wasn't obvious looking at it from the other end of the binoculars. Uh, the other thing was trying to get people to believe me when I kept saying over and over and over again that Tommy was never wrong about anything. He never sleeps. He uh, gets out pads, of, you know, legal pads and pens, and he thinks and he thinks and he thinks. And if he's got something up ahead of him, he thinks of everything that can go wrong. Uh, and then he comes up with ways, and what am I going to do if this does go wrong? How am I going to be prepared to handle that? And then he does something most people wouldn't think of. He says, um, what could go right? And if it goes right, how can I enhance it? He's always thinking of everything he possibly can think of to, pr to make something successful. Um, and he pushed engineers, uh, other scientists who were at the very, very top, the very best in their fields around the world. He would pull them into his group and we, he would push them to think even beyond where they were. Okay, so what you just heard, um, and part of that is a little bit of slideshow. Uh, this is Gary Kinder talking, and he is talking in June of 1998. He's got this book that he's just published, and it's about this whole story. But, you know, 1998, it's a whole different ball game back then versus like the the condition of the story today. So I've heard that he's publishing an updated version and I really hope that he does. Um, this is a great adventure story. If you're looking for something for the holidays, uh, it's called ship of gold in a deep blue sea. It's, uh, available on Amazon. I think you can get it, uh, on there in a way that like you could read it digitally. Um, I actually, I bought one of the, the hardback versions of it. It's a fantastic, adventure story and it is so well researched uh we could not cover half of deep gold without him having written this story and i encourage people to grab this book and to read it and at some point i'm hoping that we can actually sit down and interview gary talk about his process and and talk about all of this but the reason i dropped this in here one it covers the central america and it covers sort of a glancing overview um, from the book of the story of of how this all starts um and that actually tells in detail what was happening leading up to the dis the rediscovery of the central america which is that's tommy thompson he's talking about there and tommy thompson is responsible for that having happened and that becomes a big part in the next couple of episodes of how dramatic all of this is, but I wanted people to hear how he describes Tommy Thompson from his research. 
regardless of whether he is correct or not, the impression that you get from that is that Tommy Thompson is a brilliant, he calls him a genius. He's a brilliant person and he's doing things uh, that are so, sort of humanity based. And that's going to make the next part of this story even more heartbreaking, in my opinion. So essentially what happens is Tommy Thompson, the person that we've been describing and kind of leading up to here, he hits the lottery in terms of figuring out how to get to this shipwreck. It's it's definitely interesting. Yeah, for sure. And and I do want to say I think this is a little bit different than winning the lottery cuz he had to do some work for it, right? But I guess the hit or miss type thing is the element of that is still there. So it was work plus luck. So, you know. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. 
and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. 
It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is true crime access. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding new era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, We love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime access. <laughs> 